pray together. Father God, I thank you for this time to gather together to worship, to celebrate, to grow. Take your word, Father. Bring it into our hearts and transform us. And then we pray. Amen. Y'all can grab a seat. Hi there, New Life. My name is Mark. I am the discipleship pastor. Thank you, Crip. I am the discipleship pastor here at New Life, and we're so excited that you're here to join us. I'm excited because this is the first time I have preached through March with more people in the room other than Pastor Chris and the band. So I'm pumped because y'all are here with me. That's awesome. And so thank you for coming here this morning. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's, that's great. And I'm exceedingly excited that you're worshiping with us online. It's great this weekend to be with people physically. It's also really, really awesome to be with our New Life family online as well. And if you want to follow along with us today, there is a really easy way to do that. If on your phone you have something called the YouVersion app or the Bible app, if you open it up in the bottom, there are three little lines in the bottom right-hand corner. If you hit that and you hit events, our event will come up, especially if you're in the room. If not, you can look for New Life Christian Ministries. You can follow along with our outline and our scripture references right there and follow along with us. I'm so glad to be back in person with many of you, but I will be honest, coming back to church has been a bit challenging. If you haven't noticed recently, everyone seems to have an opinion. Anybody notice that? Anybody? Yeah, a lot of people have opinions right now. And coming back to church has been a wee bit challenging. It, it, has, it has just been hard. But during this whole season, we have learned a lot of things and we've grown a lot. One of the things that we have learned is that the online venue is a phenomenal place for God's kingdom to grow. It's been more successful and more awesome than we ever expected. We have reached more people over the past couple of months through our online worship venues than we ever thought that we would. And people that we would never have the opportunity to reach through our physical worship location. And that has been incredible. Another thing that we have noticed is that we've had to get creative with new problems. And we've had to rely on Jesus more over the past four months, for especially for weekend worship, than we have ever had to rely on Jesus in the past 19 years. And by the way, when you rely on Jesus more, it is a good thing. And when you have to get creative to solve new problems, it's a good thing too. It's challenged our staff and given us a chance to grow. For many of us who are younger staff members, it's been our first time navigating a difficult cultural season while being part of the leadership of a church. And we've had a great opportunity to grow through that. It has been a challenging but also a really engaging season. I had talked to uh, one of our small group coaches, and they helped me lead all of the other various small groups a couple of weeks ago, and she said, COVID-19 has done one of two things to people. Either they've gotten a new workout routine and they've lost 10 pounds, or they've gained 15. And I'm like on the, I'm like more, not quite 15, okay, but like I'm more on the gain, definitely not a new workout routine. And then she said, it's the same spiritually. For some people, they've engaged with this season and they found ways to be a blessing and a light in the darkness for Jesus to people, and they've grown rapidly in their spiritual lives. And for others, some of us have put on about 15 pounds of spiritual dead weight in the form of bad habits, returning sins, and broken relationships. 
And I'm certainly not exempt for that. One of the things that COVID has showed me is that I'm in desperate need of a solid routine in order to stay spiritually fit. In fact, I'm humbled by how easy it was for me to fall out of the rhythms of spiritual development and spiritual discipline during this season. But if you need spiritual boot camp, and I think some of us do in order to get fit, to get back on the front lines of God's kingdom work, this series is great for that. Because in this series, we are looking back at different characters from Scripture and the way that they actually engaged with trials and difficult times in their own lives and in their own seasons. We're looking at exactly what it is that they did. And this week, we are going to look at probably what is one of the most profound and prolific biblical characters, rivaled probably only by Moses for most important character in the Old Testament. He grew up as a shepherd. He rescued Israel's army. He was a phenomenal harp player, which is a side note, but still an important note. Harp isn't easy to learn, I would think. I've never tried, but I would think it's hard to learn. He also led Israel's armies in battle. He became king. He lived as an exile. He messed up royally. And most importantly, he's described as a man after God's own heart. We're talking, of course, specifically about King David. King David is talked about more in the Old Testament than just about any other biblical character. He grew up as the eighth son in line to a man named Jesse. He's probably most known for the fact that he went up against Goliath with a sling and a stone only. After he killed Goliath, he went and played musical instruments for the king inside of his palace and inside of his throne room. He became a general and led Israel's armies. The king tried to kill him and he was exiled he lived in a land named Gath, acted like he was insane to survive, to survive the wrath of the king of Gath. He became king of Israel. And when we look at the end times, oftentimes it's compared to David's dynasty, his life, his rulership. He's the most benevolent and well-loved king and the best king in all of Israel's history. Once he comes on the scene, it's scarce to find a passage of scripture that doesn't involve David. Because the arrival of Jesus was the fulfillment of a covenant that God made with David. He's an incredibly important character. And not many parts of the Bible fail to involve him. So whenever I sat down to write this message, I didn't have a problem coming up with material. In fact, I had too much to cover. I mean, David wrote most of the book of Psalms. And if you don't know about the book of Psalms, it's the middle of your Bible. So if you flip to the middle or anywhere near it, you're going to end up in Psalms. Because it's enormous. It takes up a huge chunk of the middle of the Bible. I mean, we could preach for a year on all that King David did and the writings that he wrote, all of the stuff that King David did. We, we, could, we could talk about him for a year or more in messages. So how was I supposed to capture that in 30 minutes? Well, I decided to narrowly focus in on two parts of David's life. The first part is as a child shepherd, and the second part would be him as an exiled outlaw. But before we dive in, I do want to point out our take-home point today. Our take-home point's the one point I'm going to seek to make so that we can live it out and take it home in the week ahead. Our take-home point this week is our calling does not change even if our circumstances do. Our calling does not change even if our circumstances do. Many of us know that David was described as a guy after God's own heart. And that's something important. It seems important anyway. I mean, if If you're described as a man after God's own heart, it seems like that might be something that we should know about, something that 
is important. And it is important, but what in the heck does it mean? I mean, was he a man after God's own heart because he killed Goliath? Was he a man after God's own heart because he was a really, I don't know, good harp player? I mean, most of us know the song, uh, the secular song, Alleluia, that goes, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. It's referring to David's prolific harp, harp playing ability. Perhaps it's because he was a brilliant tactician and he led Israelites into many victorious days. So what is it and what do we need to do to be a people after God's own heart? Do we need to be brave? Perhaps loyal? Should we be faithful? What do we need to do to be described as a people after God's own heart? For that, we have to actually go back to before David ever comes on the scene in a book called 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel recounts the stories of some of the first kings in the life of a prophet named Samuel. When we get to this point and we go to this story, what we see is the first king, Saul, who was anointed king over Israel against God's better wishes, but the Israelites complained and wanted a king. And so Saul became king after Samuel anointed him king. Saul becomes king and he's going to battle with a group of people called the Philistines. And he's been waiting because Samuel tells him, I'm going to come and make a sacrifice, an offering to the Lord, and then you can go into battle, but not before. But wait for me for seven days, and after seven days, I will arrive and I will make the offering. So Saul gets all of his forces together and they go to go to war against the Philistines, and he doesn't show up. No prophet. Seven days go by, still no prophet. Saul looks around and he sees that his soldiers are becoming scared. They've been sitting on the eve of a battle for over a week. And in their fearfulness, they begin to flee and desert him. He's afraid he's going to lose his soldiers. So he takes matters into his own hands and makes the offering himself. And then Samuel shows up. We see the story in 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 10, going to verse 14. It says this, Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Bad timing, Saul. Saul went out to meet and welcome him, but Samuel said, What is this that you have done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive. You said you would, and the Philistines are at Michmash, which is a funny name for a place, ready for battle. So I said, The Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, which I thought it was Michmash, but Saul's confused. I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering myself before you came. How foolish, Samuel exclaimed. He's talking to the king. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Before we even meet David, Samuel tells us that God has sought out a man after his own heart. David hasn't killed Goliath. He hasn't led the armies. He hasn't done anything of significance. But it's already said that David is a man after God's own heart. He's a shepherd in his father's household, the youngest of eight brothers. Little to no inheritance waits for him. As a shepherd, he lived out in the fields, a job occupied usually by slaves and servants, never by a son. He is the last child from a forgotten family in the backwoods of the promised land. He has no kingly stature, no noble bearing. 
The most the Bible describes him as is ruddy and handsome. In fact, whenever Samuel came to anoint one of uh, the sons as the next king, his father, Jesse, didn't even call him in from the fields. He left him out there. Didn't even think it was worth calling his son in to potentially become the next king. But the Lord said to Samuel, I do not see as humans see. Humans look at outward appearances, but I look into the heart. I look into the heart. So what did God see in David's heart? Or more importantly, what did God see in David's heart that he did not see in Saul's heart? I believe it's this. Obedience and faith expressed through a deep knowing of who is in control. Obedience and faith expressed through a deep knowing of who is in control. When we know who's in control, it changes the way that we live and eventually characterizes our entire life. Saul faced a Philistine army. When he looked out at his men, they were disheartened and they were frightened, and that would scare any one of us. They had begun deserting him, and they had begun fleeing. And if Saul is in control, then Saul needs to take care of this problem. If Saul is in control, he needs an army to defeat the mighty army of the Philistines. If Saul is in control, he needs men who are emboldened and who are ready for battle, not men who are afraid. If Saul is in control, he can't afford to wait any longer for some prophet to show up and make an offering that he, the king, could just make for himself. If Saul is in control. But if in the story God is in control... Well, if God is in control, then there's no army needed because God can call down fire from heaven. He can destroy stone walls with the blast of a trumpet. If God is in control, no men are needed because God defeated the Egyptian army when the Israelite had no fighting men. If God is in control, then morale and numbers matter not because God defeated a vast army with a few men carrying pots, trumpets, and a battle cry. If God is in control, Saul can do nothing but wait for the prophet. But Saul forgot who was in control. Do you see what happens when we know who's in control? When we know God is in control, we don't worry about what we'll eat because God feeds the birds. We don't worry about what we'll wear because God clothes the lilies of the field. When we know who's in control, we need to only worry about one thing, and that is obeying him. When we know who's in control, we need to only obey. Saul forgot who was in control. And if he had remembered, it may have turned out completely differently. So why was David a man after God's own heart? Because he remembered who was in control. And that belief was displayed in obedience and faith. He remembered who was in control. And that belief was displayed through obedience and faith. David displayed that obedience and faith probably in one place more than any other, and that's when he was in exile. David had served King Saul faithfully. He had led the men to many battles. He was the grandest general. They sang songs about him and praised David for the victories that he brought to the nation of Israel. He was a rising star, so much so that Saul became intimidated by him His fame, his power, his influence. Saul had known he had been anointed to be the next king, but he didn't want that. So he tried to kill David more than once. He flung a spear at him and tried to pin him to the wall and David fled into the wilderness. 
with a small group of mercenaries, some men that were loyal to him. Most of them, kind of, the Bible describes them being a bit crazy. I mean, if you look at his mighty men later on, they were nuts. He escaped into the wilderness of Judea, south of Jerusalem, to a place called En Gedi, what they called crags of the wild goats, because oftentimes family of wild goats would go and live there. When I was in Israel, I went to En Gedi. All around, in every area that you can see, all there is is a barren wasteland of red dirt and rock. That's it. And then in this ravine, this crevice that comes down out of the hillside, you stand down below and look at it up above you, is this spring, and it's the only green life anywhere around. This crag that comes down through the hillside, surrounded by nothing but barren wasteland, life springs forth, and amongst it, a network of small caves. And in En Gedi, David and his men went and sought refuge. Saul gathered his army and went to find them. When he heard about where they were, they marched to En Gedi to kill David and his men. We pick the story up in 1 Samuel chapter 24. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. Poop. That's what it is. I mean, come on. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. Wouldn't that be embarrassing? You're like trying to poop in nature, and there's a whole group of people watching you, and you don't know it. That's most people's nightmare alone right there. They said, now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece from the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. When he shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say I am trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As that old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds. So you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry. And he said to David, You are a better man than I am. For you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today. For when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for your kindness that you have shown me today. David had Saul as good as dead. That was it. Saul came 
creeping up to a cave to relieve himself away from his men. And it just happened to be the cave that David and his men were in. It only was one stroke of his sword, and David could end everything. God had delivered Saul on a silver platter at the mouth of the cave. He could have ended the exile. He didn't have to live in a cave anymore. He could have brought his men back to their families, lived in Jerusalem. He had been anointed to be king. He was one stroke away from being the king of Jerusalem, the ruler of Israel, a city and a nation that loved him. And some may have seen it, and his men saw it as an act of providence from God himself. Look, look, Saul is at your mercy. You could do with him as you wish. But David didn't see it as an opportunity. He saw it as a test. He was asking this, did David believe God was in control? Or did David see the opportunity to take control himself? Did David really believe that God was in control? Or did David see an opportunity to take control himself? If David is the one who is in control, then killing Saul is a no-brainer. You run him through, you return with the army who's already loyal to you. But if God is in control, then killing Saul could be a complete and total disaster. Like David, Saul had also been anointed to be king and ruler over Israel. And David knew that he was to one day rule Israel, but he knew it was not by raising his hand against the Lord's anointed. He would one day be the ruler as God had said, but it wouldn't be with the king's blood staining his hands. Because David knew who was in control. And then he went out to the mouth of the cave and he shouted out to Saul. And at that moment, Saul could have grabbed his soldiers, marched up to En Gedi, it's not that far away, and slaughtered them in the caves. There's not many places to go. It's not this intense network of caves. It's just cave here, cave here. They're not connected. But here's the thing. Although that could have happened, David knew this. David was more concerned with glorifying God than his own desires and his own rights. David was more concerned with glorifying God than he was with his own desires or his own rights. Once again, David knew who was in control, and he lived that out through obedience and faith. So what do we learn from David's epic tales of faithfulness, trusting God, obedience? We learn this. If God is in control, it does not mean, not mean, we get to do whatever we want. It means we get to do whatever he wants. If God is in control, it doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want. It means we get to do whatever he wants. Although COVID-19 has changed our lives, and it's likely going to continue to change our lives in the weeks and the months ahead, it doesn't change our calling as followers of Jesus. Because our calling as followers of Jesus do not change simply because our circumstances do. God still calls us to be a people who will first seek to glorify and to obey him. The question isn't if we're wrong. The question is not if what's happening is fair. It's not if it's constitutional. It's not if it's convenient. It's not if we like it. That isn't the question. 
The question is always and will always be as followers of Jesus is how do I glorify and obey God in this circumstance? And trust me, I haven't done this well. I hate basically everything about the past couple months. I mean, I got more time with my kids. I don't want to wear the mask. When you burp in it, you have to breathe your own burp. It's the worst. I've been saying that since day one. The worst thing about masks is burping into it. It's awful. Especially if you have burps like mine. It'll make you fall over. I don't want to wear the mask. I don't like being told what to do. There's been times over the past four months that I was told what to do so much that I rebelled and intentionally did what I was told not to do simply because I didn't want to do it. There's been times over the past couple months that it's been terrifying to be the father of two little girls. There's been times where I've been more concerned with the America I was leaving my children than I've been concerned with the legacy of faith that I was leaving them. There's been times where I've been more concerned with my rights than I have been with my neighbor's eternal destination. I get it. You can ask my wife. Since like January, I've been saying this thing is a hoax to disrupt the economy. I don't like it. I get it. But then I realized something. It doesn't matter what I believe. If God is in control, oops, that's not the right line. If God is in control, it doesn't matter what I think or believe on these issues. It only matters if I obey and glorify him. If God is in control, it really doesn't matter what I, Mark, like lives in Saxonburg and is 32 years old, my limitless wisdom thinks or believes about the issues. It only matters if I seek to glorify and obey God. More than a few people during this pandemic have said, God is in control. And what they meant was, I can do whatever I want. And it's sort of, it's been difficult for me. Because it's not true. In fact, it's a bad mixture of American privilege and bad theology. God being in control doesn't mean that we get to do whatever we want to do. Knowing God is in control means we get to do whatever he wants us to do. Knowing God is in control does not mean we get to do whatever we want. It means we get to do whatever he wants. Knowing God is in control doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want. It means we get to do whatever he wants. David was a man after God's own heart because he asked the right questions. He didn't ask if it was fair. It wasn't fair. He was anointed to be king too. He didn't ask if it was convenient. It wasn't convenient. He lived in a cave. He didn't ask if it was right. It wasn't right. He had never done anything to harm Saul. He simply asked, what do I need to do to obey and to glorify God in each situation he was in? David wasn't always perfect, but one of the things that you can see that characterizes him is he cared more about glorifying, obeying God than anything else. And I believe that this church deeply desires, that the people of this church and this congregation, this family, want to be a people after God's own heart. And that's really what our next step is this week. Our next step this week is I will seek God's heart this week because I know he is in control. I will seek God's heart this week because I know he is in control. When we try to control everything, it messes things up bad. I don't know about you, but I've tried to control a lot of things. 
And a good bit of that has been come about asking the wrong questions. So my one practical thing for this week for you is to start asking different questions. Instead of asking if it's constitutional, if it's fair, or if it's convenient, when we're faced with a situation, ask instead, what will demonstrate my obedience to God and what will glorify him? What will demonstrate my obedience to God and what will glorify him? If we want to truly seek to have a heart after God's own heart, we can't do that without first knowing him. The Bible actually says that we are enemies of God. And we can't draw close to him and have his heart and at the same time be his enemies. But you can change that. God says those who put their faith in his son, Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, move from being enemies to being children, from enemies to friends. They become adopted into an eternal family going from eternal separation from their creator to eternal peace with him. And putting your faith in Jesus is as easy as A, B, C. A is to admit, admitting that you're a sinner. B is to believe, believe that Jesus is your savior and your Lord. Savior meaning he saves you from sin and death. Lord meaning your owner. It's to believe that he died on the cross and that he rose again and he did so for you. Because he loves you. And C is confess. Yes, we're confessing that we're sinners, but we're also confessing Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And we're going to sing a song in a moment, and after that I'm going to pray, and we're going to go over this again. But it's going to give you a chance to really think about putting your faith and your life in the hands of Jesus Christ. About stepping into that family so that you can have a life that truly seeks after the heart of God as well.